0: So my partner and I had to say, okay, we'll each put in X amount of money. And it was a decent amount of money, a lot more than I'd put into any one trade. And the promise was great. The potential was great. It was a lot of money, but the amount of money we were making from this customer was also pretty big. So we went in and we thought the payout would be in two to four years. This was, I think 2012,
1: maybe 2013, but it's 2019, Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Michael Liebowitz. Michael, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to roll. Let's do it. All right. I'm going to tell the audience a little bit about you. Michael brings more than 25 years of financial markets and risk management experience as a portfolio manager at RIA Advisors. Throughout his career, Michael has been involved in trading, portfolio construction, and risk management, involving some of the largest and most active portfolios in the world. In addition to broad institutional experience, he's also built a successful independent investment advisory, which allowed him to further extend his experience into the realm of investment management for individuals and family offices. Michael's background and experience are the product of a diverse career path that affords him a unique investment and economic perspective. Grounded in logic and common sense, hey, that's, that's a good one. I like that. He blends his vast trading and investment experience with economic viewpoints that deliver pragmatic and actionable thought leadership to clients. Michael, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: So I realized as you read that that I've actually been in a business for 30 years. I guess five years flew by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I spent probably the first 20 years of my career trading bonds institutionally. Traded mortgages, traded derivatives, traded corporate bonds, money markets. And I was doing that on a scale of, you know, where each trades in the millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions. And from that, I really learned how the system works, what really drives the system. For instance, you know, I was for a while doing repo trades with this whole repo mess coming going on in You know, September, October, I have a great appreciation for what's going on in that market. But I think more importantly, especially to my clients today, how it affects all these other markets and what the Fed's doing. So, you know, I think I'm a little bit unique in that I have this institutional experience. And then I'm also used to holding hands of someone with a couple hundred thousand dollars because they're a little scared
1: of the market or, you know, it's kind of a full circle view of the world of finance. That's interesting. I mean, I always say my first 10 years as an analyst was as a bank analyst in the boom times in Thailand and then into the 1997 Asian crisis, deep into the black (laughs) hole of that, and then the whole recapitalization and recovery of the banking sector. So I always felt like that placed me in a unique position as an analyst because as a bank analyst, you have to really study the economy and you have to know a lot more about what's going on if i had just been maybe i don't know a consumer analyst i may not have paid as much attention to all of that i'm just curious out of from your background and also keep in mind that some of the listeners are young people coming up and they're thinking about their career choices and i'm just curious like what what is interesting or what is unique about you know trading in the fixed income markets because a lot of people may look at the equity markets and it's, you know, really sexy and you know, Warren Buffett and all of this. But, you know, why should someone be thinking about the fixed income markets and, you know, trading in them?
0: So first of all, they're little, they're not as boring as everyone says. They trade on price just like stocks. And with the right amount of leverage and the right amount of risk, you can lose just as much money in the bond market as a stock market, if not more. I think you know, I got into the bond market because it was my first job. Someone said, Hey, you want to come be a trader assistant on a mortgage desk? I said, okay, I don't, I don't, I know what a mortgage is, but I don't really know what a mortgage is. And Mm. this whole idea of trading mortgages and all that, that, that was foreign to me. But what I, in hindsight, what I learned was in the bond market, you can be short, you can be long and no one cares. In the stock market, You're long, everyone's long. There are some shorts, but they're outliers, they're bears. they're bad people. In the bond market, you're long, you're short, you're stating your view. So it's a big
1: difference and it's interesting. Mm, That's a very good point, I hadn't thought about it. All right, well, let's let's get into it. I wanna ask you to share your worst investment ever and since no (laughs) one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story that you've got some notes. I noticed you've worked hard to prepare yourself for today. Working
0: hard. (laughs) I wanted to impress you and your listeners. There you go. (laughs) So this goes back to probably 2011, 2012. I started my own money management firm, and this is for individuals. And I had partnered up with a buddy of mine, and we were growing a good book of business. And we had one client who was huge. He was The amount of assets we had of his was at least 10 times more than the next person. So, you know, we talk to him all the time. We, we cater to this client. He comes to us one day and he says, Hey guys, I'm investing in this chip company like computer chips, but it's a very unique company. And I'm putting, you know, the, the, he put a huge amount of money into it. He goes, you guys should really come along with me. And it wasn't really a guilt trip, but it was, uh, you know, I'm trusting you. Maybe you guys should trust me a little. So I look at my partner and I go, what are we going to do? We're going to potentially lose the guy or lose some of his assets. I think we just got to take one and let's listen to the pitch. And assuming it's halfway decent, we'll go along. So we get the pitch and it's just a private. He basically is investing in someone with a decent track record that knew what he was doing. And so the other guy gets on, he explains everything. It's pure technology. We don't really know what we're hearing. So my partner and I just say, okay, we'll each put in X amount of money. And it was a decent amount of money, a lot more than I'd put into any one trade. And the promise was great. You know, the potential was great. It was a lot of money, but the amount of money we were making from this customer was also was also pretty big. So we went in and we thought the payout would be in two to four years. This was, I think 2012, maybe 2013. It's 2019. Was this, was this, was this stock listed or was this- unlisted? wasn't a stock, private okay, company. company. Okay, got it, perfect. And as we'll get to later, that's kind of, that was the flaw. And we'll talk about that later, but, but it's 2019 and maybe we'll sell the company in a year or two. I may even make, money on it. I may even make good money, but I still consider it. And it's not necessarily, I've lost money in other companies, in other publicly traded companies and bonds Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things. I've lost money. This is my worst trade because I may lose money, but because I didn't listen to myself, to what I know, what I'm good at. Mm.
1: And I'm just curious if you could describe the feelings, you know, when you talk to your partner at that point, you know, you kind of know, well, we don't really want to do this. But, you know, how was that discussion going? And what what did you feel at the time? Because sometimes feelings and intuitions actually can guide us, you know.
0: we we both had the same intuition. We both, look, we don't know what we're doing. Sounds like a great idea, but, you know, we were both in this business at that point for 20, 20 plus years. You hear all kinds of great stories, all kinds of penny stock type stories. Buy this thing for a dime. It's going to go up to $10 in the next five years. So we're used to those kind of stories and those kind of promises. And we looked at each other and we said, we got to do it. And we both knew it was wrong, but neither one of us really, as we should have in hindsight, stood up and said, this isn't what we know. It may be a great investment, but
1: it's not for us. And one last question about the story. I, I, (laughs) when I was in university at Cal State Long Beach, when I, I was studying finance, but I bought this old, this XT IBM computer and I was learning how to code and I got a job at Pepsi. And the first thing I went and did when I got into the job after a couple of weeks is I was showing off my skills. And I said, let me clean up the subdirectory of this computer. And it was a computer that was running, you know, the whole, you know, inventory system. And I proceeded to delete every file on the whole computer. <laughs> and you know, when, You know, when you press that button and sweat just comes out and you're like, oh, uh-huh. what did I just do? Right. I'm just curious. Was there a moment in time besides that initial moment later on where you thought, this, you know, was really wrong or something like that? Or when when did you just capitulate or say, yeah, disaster or whatever? was there So a point? two things.
0: The client left us about a year and a half later for other reasons. He had some other issues. He left us. I still talk to him. I mean, he's still, mm. you know, just as involved in this company, I'm a lot more involved in the company than me. Mm. And then it's been one headache after another with the development of the chip, with the trying to partner up, raising more shares, you know, they're constantly diluting me. So I'm constantly reminded of it. And there's still the gold pot at the end of the rainbow was still there. I just, you know, it's like a carrot in front of your nose. You just can't grab it. <laughs> so, so it's this content. It's not like a, you know, before we got on, we talked about an oil trade that I made in 2007 that I lost a lot of money on. Hmm. That one, that one, I could at least sell it lose my money and be done. I haven't thought about that trade in 10 years. This one I'm reminded of. I get emails, I get phone calls. I have to be on conferences. (laughs) Just Uh,
1: never ends. So let's go through. What lessons did you learn from this? The
0: most important lesson is to stay in your lane. Do what you know best. I feel I'm very good in the public markets, particularly the US markets. I understand bonds inside and out. I understand how equities work, how to value equities, how to run some fundamental analysis. I can do some charting, some basic technical charting. I know how to read technical charting. I'm really good at economics. So that's where both for my clients and for myself, that's where I am best advising myself Mm. or my clients. And that's the lesson is to... Don't get too cute. Even if the promise is great, the returns are going to be unbelievable. Getting into something that you don't know. I mean, really, it's still after 10 years about learning about chips and how they work and how they, you know, I still don't know what they're talking about when these technology guys get on the phone. Yep. So it's stay in your lane. Do what you do best. It's okay to say no to an opportunity, but, you know, focus on what you can
1: do. Got it. And let me uh, share some of my takeaways. The first thing is that after going through 500 written stories of loss and more than 150 interviews of loss, we're talking about a lot of loss. Gosh, that's 650, a lot of lost money. <laughs> yeah, that's 650 stories that I've heard, read, or discussed. I've teased out six common mistakes that people make. The number one most common mistake is fail to do their research. Number two is failed to properly assess and manage risk. Number three is driven by emotion or flawed thinking. Number four is misplaced trust. Number five is failed to monitor their investment, and number six. I think I know where you're going with yeah, this. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, number six is kind of I, I couldn't really figure out what to call this one, but so many of the stories invested in startup companies, and so I said. Common mistake number six was investing in a startup company. And, you know, there are some other points that I've highlighted, that you've highlighted about the common mistakes there. But I want to focus in on this invested in a startup company because... So
0: real quick, though, I think I covered all six bases.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Because if you properly... Well, let's just say that you assess the risk reasonably. You knew it was risky. Then the mm-hmm. next part of that is to manage the risk, to say, all right, you know, okay, we're going to put 1% or 0.1, tell this guy, you know, we're in, but we're not going to get into, you know, that amount or whatever. But I just want to come back to the, this idea of investing in a startup. And you raise two main issues that people don't think about when they get the entrepreneurial seizure and they get so excited about investing in a startup. And that is first that you mentioned is dilution. I think very few people think about the fact that if you put you know, $100,000 into a startup company and it's successful, it's gonna need more money. So you should be thinking about, when you invest in a startup company, and let's say they come to you and they say, we need 100,000 from you, you know, whatever, you need to think 10 times that. Because either you're gonna lose it all, startup investing is so binary. You know, even if you buy, you know, you talk about a a bad trade where you bought something at hundred and went down to 70, you still have 70, but with a startup, it usually is very binary. So you're either going to lose all that 100 or they're going to come back to you and ask for more money. And if you do not have that money to put into it, then you're going to be diluted. And that means that you're going to have less and less and less of a share in the profits that the company generates.
0: And if they can't find another sucker like you, the company's done. Yep,
1: And which, you know, is another, there's many, many lessons that I've learned about this, but one of them is don't, don't be the main provider of capital. So right. the second thing is the idea that you hit upon, which is illiquidity. So as you said, stay in your lane. I'm an expert in the public markets. Well, one of the benefits of the public markets is that you can get out. But with startup investing, it's a very, very difficult to exit. It's not impossible. And, you know, sometimes it works, but everybody sees the dream. But the reality is that illiquidity can just crush you for years in hopes that someday, you know, you'll get some liquidity to that. So those are two of the things that I kind of think about that I take away. But anything you'd add? I would say it's the risk management. I made one risk
0: management decision, and that was how much money am I going to put into this? That was the last time I made a risk management decision, not because I didn't want to, because there's no other way for me to manage my risk. I can't hedge it in any way. If I bought, if I bought a stock, a bond, anything, I can, I can sell it, but I can also hedge it. I can buy puts. I can short something else that's similar. Mm. There's plenty of ways to protect my risk. I can also quantify my risk. I can look at what it did in 2008, what a stock did in 2008, for instance. I can, there's numerous ways to quantify risk. I can't, maybe I can, you know, the risk on this is I lose everything. It's kind of almost a binary thing. Whereas if you go buy Exxon today, it's not binary. You may lose 5, 10, 20%. You may make 20%, but it's not all or none. And the reward, the return and reward is great too. But you get blinded by that and you fail to think about the downside and and the ability. I can't manage the risk also because I don't really have a seat at the table. And even if I did have a seat at the table, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's all technology. It's so far out of my realm. I have enough
1: trouble hooking up for this uh, interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the one last piece of advice that I would give to the listeners is if you want to invest in startup, which a lot of people are like, yeah, I want to, in, I want to invest in a startup company. Don't invest in one, invest in 10. Mm-hmm. And that's a risk management strategy that allows you to not get so intensely you know, into one, but then you become an angel investor, a startup investor, a VC investor, and then go pursue that and have fun.
0: So- and, and the other way to think about doing it is, and I do a little bit of this, is I have an old friend of mine that invests in marijuana related companies in the US. And I have spent not a lot of money, but I own five or six different investments, different areas. It's you know, from manufacturing to machinery, to greenhouse type equipment. And I'm diversified. Not any one investment is big. If I lose, I lose. It's not the end mm-hmm. of the world. And I mm-hmm. trust the guy that's doing the work. And he okay. can explain to me what's going on and why it's going on. And marijuana is kind of easy
1: to understand. Right. It goes <laughs> on, It goes higher. All right. Hopefully. Yeah. Based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action, would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I'd like to really take it down to that moment where somebody is kind of really encouraging you for different reasons to put money in something like this. And you kind of feel that it's wrong, you know, but you also see the argument that you should do it. What one piece of advice would you give them? Just stand up for yourself.
0: You know, we ended up losing that client anyway about a year two years later So stand up for yourself. At the end of the day, he wasn't going to fire us for not investing. But we just didn't have the cojones to stand up to the guy. So we both should have, myself, I should have listened to myself. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm giving you a large sum of money that I would love to have now. The market's been up 200% since then. So I really could have had a lot more than that today. And you just got to say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say no and let whatever, and even if whatever you're going to buy goes up a lot, that's fine. Just think about tomorrow.
1: Stop thinking about the past. I love that. Stand up for yourself. And I think that in the long run, you'll be more respected by the people around you and your clients for taking that principled stand and saying, look, I just can't do this, but you know, you don't have to be mean in any way. All right. Right. So last question, mm-hmm. what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal, to survive the
0: Fed. Uh, <laughs> so I write a lot of articles too, in addition to managing money, managing risk. I, write, I try to put out an article a week and do some commentary for a subscriber site we have as well. And what I found is that instead of writing about fundamentals, instead of writing about the economy, that half, three quarters of the articles I write are about the Fed. That's not the way it's supposed to work in the real world in a free market, capitalistic society. Mm -hmm. And I find that the Fed is the driver of markets. And I just want to survive another year of the Fed dictating, to some degree, terms of the market, Mm -hmm. when it's allowed to go up, when it's allowed to go down. And it's very difficult because a lot of times it goes against
1: your fundamental feelings, your fundamental thoughts. It's interesting because when you talk about the fixed income market, everybody accepts the fact that central banks are involved in that market. Big Mm -hmm. banks are trading in that market. When you think about the equity markets, you're not thinking that they're being influenced by the central banks.
0: So when I grew up in the fixed income markets, the Fed influenced the markets. They would play around in Fed funds. They would do some coupon passes where they're buying longer term treasuries, but they were so small. So they were really just dealing with overnight borrowing rates and they were influencing one year, two year, three year rates, much less of an influence further out the curve. Now they're buying 10 year bonds, you know, and and Europe and Japan are buying up huge percentages of outstanding bonds. So they are directly determining the price of money.
1: Mm, mm, Yeah.
0: So it's a different environment even today than, you know, 10,
1: 20 years ago. So survive the Fed. I think that's a great thing to think about. And for the (laughs) listeners out there, you know, thinking about your 2020 positioning and how things go in 2020, I think this is a, a good message that Michael's giving us, which is the idea that it's not so much about the underlying. It's about how much the Fed is able to manipulate the market and whether that Will eventually be overpowered, or you know, whether the market starts to come to terms with that, or what happens is kind of a, a bigger question. And I would I would add one thing to that. Everyone
0: says, "Well, the Fed's not going to let the market go down. They're going to keep pumping the markets up. They'll let it go down." Everyone says they won't let it go down more than fifteen percent. Well, the Fed was around in two thousand eight. The Fed was also around in nineteen twenty nine and 2001. So, the Fed would like to keep the markets up, I'm sure, but it's not always up to the Fed. So, yes, I think the Fed is playing a role
1: in keeping the markets up, but they don't have ultimate control. I think that's a great reminder. And I can go back to 1997. And in June of 1997, the Thai Bank of Thailand was running out of reserves. And later investigation of the actual events when they were attacked, but also running out of reserves, they they didn't fully reveal the forward commitments that they made, and the result was that it appeared that they had more that they had more foreign reserves than they had. And also, one of the lessons we learned from the 2007-2008 crisis was that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were not revealing some of the issues related to the quality of their portfolios that didn't become public until long after the crisis. And so I think that, and going into the 1997 crisis in Thailand, nobody, nobody would say that the Thai government would abandon the bot and let it fall by 50%. Nobody. And the the proof of that is that many, many companies just went completely bust because of the US dollar borrowings that they have. So the point is, is that anything can happen and markets never expect that, particularly governments are gonna bail you out because they, they will not in the end. And so it's a great reminder that, yeah, it could continue. 2020 could be a you know good year and all that, right. but it could also fall massively if the main support for the market is the Fed.
0: And I would say I'm invested in the equity markets. My clients are, but we have two fingers on the trigger to sell. It's just be ready, be aware of what can happen so that you have the parachute so that you can land safely because you want to be the one buying when stocks go on sale. You want to sell at their highs. That's the old rule,
1: I believe, right? Buy low, sell high. Something like that. Funny (laughs) that. Yes. Good point. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning plus a little bonus discussion on 2020 strategy. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Michael, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And please come back to us when you sell that that investment for a loser may be a big winner (laughs) a hundred times what you put in. And then you say, all right, I want to revise my story, but do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah. When I sell it for a hundred or 200 times, I'm going to visit you and we're going to do an interview in person there. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll have mom, mom will be listening and she'll join us for lunch. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.